Welcome to the Coventry Vineyard Podcast. Wherever and whenever you're listening, we hope you're blessed by this message. If you want to find out more about our church or speak with someone about Jesus, head to coventryvineyard.org. Today, what I want to look at is what does Daniel teach us about faithful prayer? So Daniel is... um, He's been taken out of his homeland, taken away from his family. He's grown up in Babylon, and he's seen one king after another rise and fall. And now he's an old man, and he's praying. And we get a sneak preview into this prayer. And Daniel was a man of prayer. It was his habit to pray three, days, three times a day. And he continues to do that even when it was made illegal and got him into trouble. I think today's going to be quite challenging for all of us. And I think sometimes when we think about prayer, we start to think, oh yeah, I'm not very good at prayer. Maybe I could do a bit better at prayer. And so maybe this is a bit of a window to look at how Daniel prayed, that it wasn't just, oh, I've got to pray to earn something. He was a man of prayer because he knew who God was. He knew who God is. And this led him to cry out for his people. Prayer was a vital part of Daniel's life. And I would love that for all of us, that prayer becomes a vital part of our lives. See, for 68 years, they reckon, he's been praying faithfully as a teenager brought to Babylon. And if you want to test someone's resilient faith, if you want to test your own resilient faith, look at your prayer life. Look at your private prayer life. So Daniel demonstrated resilient faith throughout his life, and this turns to a magnificent faith-filled prayer. So chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 1, says this, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, so it puts in the date when it actually was, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Okay, so he's praying, and he's meditating on Scripture. It seems that he had a habit of reading Scripture and then praying into what he read. If your prayer life is not where you want it to be, that's a great place to start. Maybe to um, look at the parables of Jesus and then pray into those parables. Maybe even look at some of the Psalms and read a Psalm, then pray into that Psalm. See, prayer according to the word of God means finding out from the scripture what God has promised and then praying for that. And Daniel is gripped by the written promises of God. It kind of wrapped around his thinking. It refused to go away. It created this tension inside of him. So what was Daniel reading? Well, in Jeremiah 36, we read how Jeremiah dictated the words of God to his servant, Barak. And he wrote out the warnings from God that if the people persisted in their betrayal and their unfaithfulness, there would be consequences. Now, Mother's Day today, I don't know if you ever had that moment whether your own mum, whether you've been a mum, and your child does something, then does, does it again, then does it again, 
And then you say, if you keep on doing that, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be a time out. And kind of Israel have been doing this stuff again and again and again. And God's warned them. If you keep on doing this, there are going to be consequences. And Jeremiah is one of these people that had heard from God and was telling the people, if we keep on this direction away from God, there are going to be consequences. And he wrote out the warnings from God to the people. And so Barak, uh, who's Jeremiah 7, he reads these warnings out in the temple. And the officials kind of hear about what Barak is saying, and they get alarmed. They declare, we must report all these words to the king. Not to kind of sneak and grasp Barak up, but it's like, this is a big deal. We've turned away from what God has called us to. And so they, they find King Jehoiakim, and he's hanging out in his winter apartment. We read all about this in Jeremiah 36. And he's sitting by a fire. And in Jeremiah 36, 23, it says, when they read three or four columns of the scroll. So this is the word given from God to the people. And they read about three or four columns. The king drew out his knife. Maybe he'd been kind of like, I don't know, cutting grapes or figs or something. He had a knife on him. And what he'd do is he'd take the scroll, and after every three or four columns, he'd cut them off with the knife and just throw them into the fire until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. He didn't want to hear about these warnings. He's like, these are the warnings to the people. You know what? I don't want to be bothered with this. And he just drops them into this word of God from Jeremiah to Barak to the people. So he sets fire to the words of God, warning them of the coming disaster. So it gets back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah rewrites everything that God had told him, and he hid it away. And these are the words that Daniel is now reading. These words that were rescued by Jeremiah for the people that came with them when they were led into exile. God protected this scroll for such a time as this. And here's Daniel reading this saved scroll. So what was it that Daniel would have read? So in Jeremiah 24... It says, my eyes, is God speaking, my eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. And then in Jeremiah 25, 8 to 11, it says, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which will then lead them out from Jerusalem into exile. Then in verse 11, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then again, in Jeremiah 29, it says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. At the end, I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. <coughs> so God's saying, there will be consequences, but I'm going to bring you back. You're going to be back in this land, back in relationship with me. And so Daniel is reading. He's reading the promises of God, and he's looking at this scroll in his old hands, and he's counting the years that he's been in exile. He's going, one, two, hang on. He's probably like 70 or 80 
They've been there maybe 68 years or so. And he's reading 70 years. And as Daniel grappled with the tension between God's word and then the reality of the situation of the people, he determines that the reality of the world must be made to conform with the reality of God's word. That he would step up, or rather he would kneel down. He would give himself to prayer, to crying out on behalf of his people. That he would be fasting until some resolution was, re was reached. So he reads Jeremiah, he reads the promises of God, and then he sees the reality of the situation. He looks at his old hands. He's been praying three times a day for as long as he can remember, remembering the prayers his own mother probably taught him back in Jerusalem. The prayers of the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, of hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so he's thinking about that and thinking about how the people have gone so far away from what God had for them that they're now in exile. But time is nearly up. And maybe he's looking towards the end of his life and he's thinking, my life is going to end soon. But my people, their story will go on. What can I do on behalf of the people that I represent? See, Daniel understood what Scripture says. And what he does with that is he turns to God in prayer. So what about you? What happens when you read something in the Bible which challenges your thinking? We talked about this last week. Or challenges your behavior or challenges your habits. Those things which we prayed about maybe in communion. Those things which you know are not what God would have for you. What do you do with that tension? That tension of this is what the Bible says. This is what God says to me. This is the truth. But then this is what's going on in my own life. Where do you turn so where did Daniel turn? In verse 3 of chapter 9, it says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel prepares himself to pray because he knew that his prayer would affect the future of his people. It would be his holy task to confess the sins of the people. He humbles himself, he fasts, he prays, he consecrates himself. He prepares his heart to be right with God. Now, some of you might be aware that over the last month or two, there's been this move of God in the US um, through uh, the Asbury University. And it seems like what's happening is similar to this, that God is moving in these 19, 20, 21-year-olds and they are being moved to consecrate themselves, to be holy. And as they do that, God is pouring out his love and his refreshing and his outpouring. So Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So what I've done is I've rather than, and you've hopefully got a Bible and you've got all that, all that chapter 9 there, I put it into a table. So you've got faithful God on one side, and you've got the unfaithful people on the other. And so what Daniel's doing in this is prayer is he's reflecting between one and the other. He's saying, God, this is who you are, but this is who we are. This is where we're at. And Daniel starts his prayer with praise and adoration. He doesn't dive straight into his request. He states at the start who the nature and character are of God, who it is that he's actually praying to. 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. A God who is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. So in verse 5, Daniel says this. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We, we have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, like Jeremiah back in the day, who spoke in your name to our kings, like King Jehoiakim that just cut the scroll and put it in the fire, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. What's amazing here is Daniel identifies himself with the people he's praying for. There is no them or they. There's not, oh, these people, they've been so awful. Those people, those baddens, those sinners, those miserable ones. What Daniel does, he identifies himself with his people. It's not they have sinned. He says, we have sinned. So Daniel, this great man of integrity and faithfulness, includes himself in the betrayal. Daniel includes himself in the shame and the sin of the people he represents. He doesn't pray, have mercy on them. He prays, Lord, have mercy on us. See, faithful Daniel places himself with unfaithful Israel. So, I'm not going to read through the whole lot because there's other things I want to get, get to. But he basically says, Lord, you are righteous. You've done everything right. God, you are merciful. You are forgiving. You fulfilled the word you said you were going to do. There was no hesitation in what you said you would do. You are righteous. You brought the people out of captivity. And then unfaithful people, they were covered with shame because of their unfaithfulness and sin. They'd rebelled. They'd refused to obey. They'd not sought God. They'd not turned to him or embraced truth. They'd not obeyed. They'd done wrong. And so what concerns and distresses Daniel in, in the, is really not the return to the land. It's really the character of the people who will return to the land. So Israel had a history of rebellion and idolatry and was suffering. But it had not driven them to godly grief. It had not driven them to genuine repentance. What concerns Daniel is not the return to the land, but the people who will return. What good would it do to have a people back in the land with still no sense of their sin and no desire to repent? Then in verse 15, it says, Now, Lord our God. Now he's getting to the request. So he's talked about the adoration. He said, God, this is who you are. And then he's saying, this is who we are. This is what what um, we're like. And he talks about the promises of the journey they've been on. Then in verse 15, he says, Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Then he finishes here. He says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because you are righteous, but because of your great mercy. 
So I don't know if you saw that or, read, or heard that. But he's constantly saying, Lord, this is something about your name. That the name of God was carried with the people. The people represented who God was to the people around them. And so Daniel's appealing to God's compassion, but he's also appealing to his reputation. And he's saying, God, this is your city. This is your holy hill. This is, these are your people. This is your devastated sanctuary. This is your name, your own sake, your city, your people. And he says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. In the message version, in verse 17, it says, act saying, God, act out of who you are, not out of what we are. So, God, this represents who you are. Now, for us, we are a people that might be called Christians, Christ-like, little Christs, followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus. And when people identify us as people who follow Jesus... Do we bring honor to God's name? When people see us, do they go, that person is a follower of Jesus? I want to know more about it. We prayed earlier, hallowed be your name in the Lord's Prayer. And when we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, Lord, make your name holy in my life and in the life of others. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to help us to live our lives so that we would bring honor and glory to God. To hallow God's name is to give God the supreme place in our thoughts, affections, and in the way we live our lives. In our mind, body, strength all that we are. It's the hero Israel, the Lord is one. See, God's name and honor was at stake here for Daniel. And God wants us to know him because he loves us and he cares for us. And I think the one thing that, consequently, that constantly seems to hinder his power in my own life is when I have an inadequate view of who God is when I forget who God is, when I forget how faithful God is, when I forget the, the courage that he can put in me, when I forget the mercy he has for me, when I forget the power that he has to heal, when I have that kind of inadequate view of who God is, that's when I start to, to drift. That's when my, my faith gets less and less resilient. A.W. Tozer said something like, when what someone thinks about God is the most important thing about them and will determine the whole course of their lives. And so Jesus taught his followers to pray, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when you're praying, where are your prayers centered? Are they self-centered, where it's all about you? Or are they, like Daniel, God-centered? Are they 
looking at what's going on in heaven and saying, God, your name be glorified. In your prayers, do you know who it is that you're speaking to? Do you know who it is that you're listening to? Do you know who God is? Do you know that he is faithful? Do you know that he is merciful? Do you know that God is forgiving? Do you know that he is completely and utterly in love with you? Do you know that he is holy and righteous? How does your, your understanding of who God is affect how you pray? Do they kind of just dribble onto the floor? It's just like, I've got 10 minutes to pray. Okay, go, here's my prayers. Or do you stop and pause? Do you open the scriptures and say, this is what God is saying to me. Therefore, I'm going to pour back my prayers. See, more was at stake here than simply the matter of 70 years being up. Daniel was not just fixing on some isolated text. He'd seen the whole sweep of Scripture. And behind it, he saw the heart behind the story. He saw the heart behind that relationship between God and people. He sees something of the revelation of God's character, of his purposes and his attitudes towards people. And the crucial issue here for for Daniel is, who is it that's made this promise? Now, this week I was at a meeting in, in Oxford, and um, before I got in the car to drive home, I texted Vicky and said, I'll be back around 10.30 p.m. Now, say 11.30 comes around, and I'm not home. There might be a text or a phone call saying, when are you back? What if 12.30 comes around? Or 1.30 in the morning, maybe she wakes up, and I'm still not there in bed. Or maybe 6.30 in the morning, she wakes up and I'm still not home. What's going to be going through her mind? See, what matters is who has made that promise. I'm going to be back around this sort of time. Now, if I'm the sort of person that doesn't, turn, come, doesn't turn back, doesn't come home uh, sort of when I say I will, or stays out all night, or comes back the next day, or maybe the next week, or the next month, I'm probably going to be in a bit of trouble. (laughs) Probably. See, for Daniel, for him, he's like, who has made this promise? God has made this promise that they will be back in the land. See, to Daniel, God was real. He was totally reliable. He was the God whose majesty filled the universe, the God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So I want to land this, otherwise I'll be talking on for way too long. I'm going to skip over that. So prayer, three things. Prayer starts with knowing who God is. Prayer is the way that we get to know God, the way we finally treat God as God. God, Prayer gives us a God-centered perspective. It kind of reorientates you towards God. And we saw that earlier on with, um, uh, we did a whole talk on reorientation. 
It's when we start to see things from God's view. And we see ourselves from God's perspective. We see that we are beloved. Now, children learn to speak by, pe- by being spoken to. They know who their mums are by the words of love spoken over them and into them. And it's similar to this. When we know who God is, our prayers are in response to what God has said to us. The clearer our understanding of who God is, the better our prayers. If you want to get good at praying, if you want your prayer life not to be stale, there's a couple of things you can do. You can read, pick up the Bible. Like I said before, parables, psalms, a really good place to start. Or have somebody that you know is really good at praying and say, how do you pray? Can I join in? Secondly, prayer lives between the tension of God's promises and our situation. Prayer turns our theology into experience. We pray well when we're immersed in Scripture. Think about all the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. He never prays for people to be removed from their situation, but to find God in the midst of the situation and to grow in resilient faith. Now, for Daniel, he gets a response. In verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier visions, angel, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. There's something about Daniel as he's praying that God said, I'm going to respond to Daniel's prayers. So the third thing, prayer is faith made audible. Prayer is continuing that conversation that God has started and turning it back to God. It starts through his word, but it ends up in this full encounter with him. Now, without giving the story away, Daniel's going to get a response to his prayer. It might not be how he thinks it's going to be, because this time out for the people of Israel is going to be a little bit longer than 70 years, because the, the land needs time to heal, and the people haven't really learned their lesson, but maybe more than that another time. So you've got this old man thinking about the end of his life, thinking about his people, praying. Move forwards several hundred years. You've got a young man in a garden. And he's saying, God, would you take this cup away from me? This young man, 33 or so, who's read scripture, who knows where his life is heading, knows that he's not going to be around all the time for his people in quite the same way as he maybe thought he was. But his people will go on. The story will go on. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the spiritual agony of Jesus. This 
picture this cup of wrath. It goes back again to Jeremiah 25, that it was this, this judgment, this wrath, the kind of the consequences of not living God's way. And Jesus says, I'm going to drink that down. I'm going to drink down that judgment, and it's going to be on my life. And he did that for each one of us. But he's wrestling with that in the garden. And where he lands is not my will, but your will be done. His resilient faith in that darkest moment carries him through. Jesus understood what Scripture said, and he turned to God in prayer in that garden of Gethsemane. All the consequences of all the wrath, all the pain, all the evil, he said, I will take it onto me. I'll take everyone's rubbish onto me for the sake of God's name. And for the sake of that relationship, that restored relationship between God and people. So what do you do with that? What are you going to do with that this next week? How are you going to pray? Thanks for tuning in today. We would love to connect with you on a Sunday morning soon. Bless you and have a great week.